off the wall and get on the dance floor. You here now, might as well let it go and bust a move. Drop, shake, jump, step, slide. Bust a move. Twist, wave, dip. Hello, Sac State students. Welcome to another episode of State Hornet Spotlight. My name is Ravi Pierce, your podcast editor, and I'm joined here today by opinion editor Magali Munoz, as well as State Hornet podcast program alumni published writer Ooh. and i hope i can say good friend of mine siobhan chapman of course you can say that robbie <laughs> <laughs> published author sounds really nice though i like that i do yeah no it's a great thing to be able to add to your to your bio to your resume <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of that so so you graduated last semester right yes may 2020 so you have this published book deal with Halfway book or halfway books, yes. So I was actually on Twitter one day and um I follow Shay Serrano. He is amazing. He writes books and he just he does a lot of things, but amongst those he writes books. He posted a link to something and I'm I had scrolled right past it, but I actually went back because the name of the publishing company caught my eye, Halfway Books, and it's a play on mob deeps ain't no such thing as halfway crooks and i was like oh that's funny what is this <laughs> and so um i saw that he was starting his own publishing company and he wanted to hire five writers to write about their favorite rap album and um the tweet literally just said write about your favorite rap album three thousand words three thousand dollars and i'm like i know three thousand words I need $3,000. Like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I clicked on, it was just like a Google, like a Google form, like a Google doc. And so um, I think I filled it out in two minutes. It said, you know, kind of like, who are you? What's your email? What album are you choosing and why? And um, I decided to write about Biggie Small's Life After Death, which I feel like I spent a lot of time on the State Hornet talking about. I feel like I'm always talking about that album. Um, and I just, I don't know, I did like, I did it in like two seconds. I was like, all right, I love this album. It means a lot to me because of X, Y, and Z. Um, and I put a couple clips to Siobhan's John, a column that I started at the State Hornet. And, um, he didn't, he didn't reach out to me for like a while. And I was like, oh, so I kind of forgot about it. I was like, well, maybe I didn't get it. Maybe I should have taken more than two minutes. <laughs> um, and it was like maybe a month and a half later. And I'm in my car and I get an email from Shay Serrano and he said, he's like, oh, you know, I saw that you applied to Halfway Books and it literally was worded kind of like a rejection letter, you know? And I was like, well, but then I'm glad I kept reading because he said, I actually read some of your column, Siobhan's John, and I love it. And I was like, oh my God. And he's like, yeah, I actually went through and I clicked on it and I read a whole bunch more. I really like the way that you write and the way that you think. And I was like, um, thank you. <laughs> and um, he offered me um, one of the positions if I still wanted it. So that's how I got it. That's crazy. But that was just from Twitter. Like you, you mm -hmm. literally just was like, okay, let me just click a link. And then that's it. Like textbook definition of just shoot your shot. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it just changed my life pretty much. It's crazy that you're only like, what, 23, right, Sean? No, I am old. Like I'm <laughs> very old. Like I'm you're, quarter. No, you're, like, you're like 25, right? I'm quarter of a century. Like, okay, 25 in a book deal, like straight out of college. Like that is impressive yeah. to just be able to like write a book and you're like, okay, well yeah, I'm a published author at 25. When it takes people decades to do that, so congratulations. 
it's really hard because out of the five people chosen, I'm, I think I'm the youngest. I'm the least experienced. I have the least amount of writing experience, least amount of Twitter followers, things like that. And so when I saw like the people that were chosen for this, I was like, oh, like these, one of the guys that was chosen, he actually in 96, he went to, um, he worked as a youth group leader and, you know, they didn't have a lot of money. You know, he wanted to do something nice for the kids. So he took them to a concert of like a rapper that wasn't super well known and nobody showed up. And um, so he went up to the guy and he's like, you know, I apologize. I completely understand if you want to perform. He's like, no, I'm going to perform for you guys. You came out for a show. I'm going to make it one day. And this was in 96. You know who that rapper was? It was Jay-Z. Like, what? And so I'm what saying, like, hell? <laughs> isn't that cool? So it's just like... Just the the people that I'm working with are truly amazing, but they're also like old, so <laughs> no. <laughs> but yeah, even older than the ancient twenty five. Oh yeah, older older <laughs> than that. Yeah. <laughs> so I I feel like the next logical question is uh, why life after death? Why'd you pick that album? So anybody that knows me knows I'm very dramatic, but <sighs> life after death literally changed my life. I remember my dad, I have it in my room. It's right over here. It's the original 97 double-sided copy. And he played it all the time. Like it was always playing in my house. Um, music was really big in general. My dad played everything from Bill Withers to Bounty Killer to Beanie Man. Like he played everything. And um, he really wanted me to be a well-rounded person. But it was something about Biggie Smalls that I really took a liking to. I really liked that, unlike a lot of like musicians or rappers, he was not shy to admit, I'm living in this life, I love it, but if I die tomorrow, I die tomorrow. And that was something that you didn't really see during that time of him kind of rapping. He was very emotional and I really connected with that. And especially with this album, he, he really spoke to a lot of his listeners because he wanted to say, he's like, well, you know, I've kind of, I'm, I've lived longer than I thought I was going to. So let me give you guys something. Let me show you what my life is like right now. And then he ended up dying two weeks before the album came out. So it's a little, it's definitely a little ominous, but it's, it's, a, that album is a masterpiece. It's beautiful. It's, it's just amazing. I love it. I was reading the little excerpt that you sent us um, and you you say that your dad showed you the album to talk about like racism and like misogyny, whatever. You also mentioned, you mentioned privilege, which I thought was really weird because you're a young black woman in America. So I'm like, yeah. what privilege is she referring to? So can you elaborate a little bit on what he was trying to teach you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my dad is from Arbor Hill, which is a which is a neighborhood within Albany, New York, and um, a lot of people there are very poor. And um, he wanted kind of a different life for me, and so at a young age, he made the really hard decision, like, okay, well, I'm moving my daughter across the country, and we're going to move to California. And it was really hard because my brother still lived, my mom and my brother and pretty much all of my family still lived in Albany. And so a lot of the choices that um, I had versus the choices that my brother had were a lot different. Even though, you know, we have the same parent, I think the decisions that my dad made kind of 
established a little bit of privilege for me because I was fortunate enough to be able to have a dad who, you know, I work because I want to. And he said, well, you don't have to, I want you to focus on school. I want you to do this and I want you to do that. And those weren't choices that my brother was given. It's like, well, you got to work. And um, because especially growing up in a neighborhood like Albany, there aren't a lot of choices. It's very small. People literally call it Smallbany. And so, um, yeah, it's like literally what it's nicknamed. And there's just not a lot of opportunity there. And a lot of the people that live there, they either live there forever, or if they leave, they always come back because they just weren't given the same opportunities. They don't have the same sort of chance to really bet on themselves. And I think if that's anything that I've learned in my life is bet on yourself because you're not going to fail. And that's something that my dad definitely taught me. And he wanted to know, he's like, yes, you have this life and you're very grateful. And I understand that. But you also need to realize that you have a sort of privilege that girls that look like me probably don't have. And um, hip hop definitely made me really understand that. And um, not even just life after death. I mean, you can listen to um, Lost Boys, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, um, just tons of tons of albums that you can really just see like, not a lot of girls had those same choices, black and brown girls. So you mentioned moving to California, obviously you lived in New York before. What is the difference in the music scene in either one and how did, what shaped you most? Obviously New York did, but what's, what, what can you take out of both of those areas that you're like, okay, this shaped my music, like listening? So that's a really good question because my dad, he came out here, it was a big culture shock for him. He had never had any Mexican food. Um, he didn't, my dad didn't listen to what, he didn't really listen to West Coast rap. He definitely didn't listen to anything from the South. New York is very, they like to gatekeep hip hop. I mean, rightfully so, you know, they, they created it, but it's definitely, it's, you know, it belongs to a lot of different regions in this country. And I think, um, East Coast rap definitely shaped a lot of my perspectives on what kind of music I like, the way that I think as well. But also California, what I really like about it is it's a different, it's a completely different vibe. It's a lot more laid back. Um, the things that they even talk about is completely different. But I also, I love, love, love hip hop from the South. Because, you know, while everybody was beefing, you know, you have... East Coast and West Coast, but in 95, when um, Outkast won at the Source Awards for, I think it was Rap Album of the Year, people were like, Outkast, the South, like, what is this? Like, <laughs> hip hop is from is from the East Coast, but we're letting West Coast do their thing. They're like, no, like the South's got something to say. And that's what he said. And they truly, truly do. And so that's definitely something that I learned on my own. And I don't think I really would have learned that just from my dad or just staying in New York because it's that gatekeeping and so I was able to learn a little bit more and I actually I might credit that towards Twitter actually because you know you meet so many different kinds of people from different sides of you know the country or the world so that's yeah interacting with the rest of your not co-authors but the rest of the people on the book deal how did that yeah. sort of expand your horizon it definitely taught me a lot you have someone like Andreas who is doing Kendrick Lamar which is the I believe, yeah, it's the new, the more of the newer album out of the um, other, out of the five. Um, 
because you it definitely teaches you that everybody has that person for them or that album kind of like I have life after death a lot of the other people who chose like Lil Kim like hardcore is an amazing an amazing amazing album and ours kind of overlapped because you know how much of a big duo that Lil Kim and Biggie how they were and so I think it was kind of you know it was pretty much inevitable that our albums were going to overlap and then you have Taylor who did Big Tuck and I I mean that's huge to Dallas and I definitely learned a lot about not just necessarily the south not just necessarily Texas but I learned a lot about Dallas in particular just from speaking to her and also just reading her book as well but just from speaking to her, I definitely learned like, you know, this is her, this is where, you know, everything kind of resonates for her and where she looks at in terms of this is where my music comes from. How is it working with people who are all like resonate or do they all resonate with you like the same culturally, like you guys all think the same? How is it working with people of color or black people other than like hearing from like a white person talk about like Eminem or something? It was, oh, that's, It's very, very nice to actually work with a lot of um, POCs because Shea Serrano is Mexican and he started this because he wanted, because a lot of the time when, you know, some, let's say someone writes a book, you know, they could write a book, let's say, you know, just like I did talking about Biggie and then you send it to, who are you going to send it to? You're going to send it to a white editor, um, someone who, you know, is a representative of a publishing house. And they're, "Hmm, well, this book doesn't really do anything for us. And they pass. And because it doesn't speak to them, or maybe they will take the book, but then they might, you know, chop it and screw it, you know, and it's not really going to necessarily be the voice that you wanted. And um, all five writers are black, but the team is actually extremely diverse. Um, And Shay actually said, he's like, we no longer need because of what he created, he's like, we don't have to have a white voice to tell us what we can and cannot do. And that's all he wanted. He wanted to just create opportunities that are not necessarily given to a lot of black and brown people. And um, because I mean, a book like I want to write, that's going to be really, really hard to find an outlet to send it to. Because even like what I'm trying to do now is I want to find representation for my book. I want to find somebody who is going to let me write it out into long form because this piece right now, it's, it's considered like I would be considered an essayist. And he's saying that now you want to get your book out so you can actually write it into long form because halfway books is a pilot publishing company. Yeah. I I did. I did want to ask about that. Like what is next for your book because I mean I don't want to downplay it at all but it is more of like an essay but I definitely yeah. based off the excerpt you sent me I definitely would read an entire book of this Thank so you. how is that coming along the next step for my book I read about Biggie as as a person and kind of like the giant that he was and I tried to tackle that the best I could and then I go into a little bit of um sometimes like suicidal thoughts um and then I go into what the album meant to me. And then at the end, I talk about um, what the album meant, like what the album meant to my dad. And then at the very, very end, I talk about how important hip hop is to black and brown people and black people specifically, because when hip hop was created in the Bronx in the seventies, it was really only, you know, black people and Puerto Ricans that were creating this art and they were doing it through kind of like underground parties. And they were 
they only had the, you know, the tools in front of them. You know, sometimes it might be a trash can. Sometimes, you know, you know, maybe your friend has, um, you know, turntables and everything like that. So you need to go ask him and then you need to get, well, like a long extension cord to go have a party in the park. And that's, that's how they were doing it. That's how they were creating this art. It's very, very different now, but those are the kind of things that I think is just so interesting about it's American history pretty much. And that is definitely the direction that I would love to take with this book if it is picked up by a publisher. And that's the next step is to find representation for the book. So anytime somebody comes and they write anything, they need to have somebody kind of like somebody to bet on it. That's kind of what you need. Somebody to say, okay, I'll represent you. Let me go push this around to different publishing houses. So that, that the answer you just gave sort of leads into another question I wanted to ask you. So like in your book, Excerpt, you talk about, you know, listening to the album over and over again, trying to decipher what the lyrics mean. And I just wanted to ask what hip hop as an art form means to you. I think hip hop is so vulnerable. I think it's beautiful. I think it's chaotic. Um, I was I was watching Sex in the City and Carrie is dating this guy who really loves jazz. And she says that she doesn't like jazz because it has no direction. She said it goes in too many different directions. And that's specifically what I love about hip hop. It goes in so many different directions and you don't know where it's gonna go. Um, and I know that like a couple of years ago, I think it was Miley Cyrus, she said she thought it was really disrespectful. Um, she thought that she's like, well, I don't want to do rap anymore. I want to do something a little bit more, um, you know, like a true music form. And I think it's very interesting when somebody that is pretty much a guest in this culture kind of comes in, they make they make it, they work with black people to make it and then they just shit all over it. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't necessarily think hip hop is disrespectful. I think, I think people are disrespectful. <laughs> so I think if they want to make something that you find that's disrespectful, it could be different than what I think is disrespectful. Um, I think hip hop is honest. I think it's a product of its own environment. I think you rap about what you see. I think you rap about what you know. And if you think it's disrespectful, then you should probably look into these neighborhoods that these people grow up in and, um, what are they seeing every day? I think that's a bigger issue. Um, but I think hip hop is honest. I think it's unforgiving. I think it's beautiful. I think it's chaotic. Yeah. How do you see hip hop from back then, like 90s when Biggie was like huge and like NWA, like those types of people who really influence hip hop? I know very little about hip hop, but I, I do know, you know, whatever. Um, how do you think that that's influenced to like now? Like, do you think that there is still potential to be those kind of great big influences or do you think it's kind of heading downhill? Like, where is hip hop now compared to then? I think the difference now is that a lot of people aren't making hip hop, they're making rap music. And I think the difference is hip hop is a culture with elements and rap is just one part of that culture. And I remember when... Um, you take like two people, for instance, you take Nicki Minaj and Cardi B. And I remember Nicki was saying, she's like, well, you know, I write my own stuff. 
hip hop is my life. She used to sell her mixtapes out of the trunk of her car in Jamaica, Queens. And then you have somebody like Cardi from the Bronx, who she says, she's like, I'm not a rapper. I, I, she doesn't write her own stuff. She takes things that people write for her and then she recites them. She's like, I do this for fun. I'm not a rapper. I don't, I'm not making hip hop music. I'm doing what she's doing. And um, I think that's the biggest difference is the people that are making this rap music don't care about hip hop in itself. Um, so I think when you actually get back to the music and get back to what you love, hip hop is political. You know, I mean, um, people like to argue, you know, kind of compare Tupac and Biggie and say that, well, Tupac was for the people and Biggie wasn't. And I think that's a bunch of bullshit. And I think um, Biggie was honest. He was. I mean, I mean, he wasn't necessarily political in the same way that Tupac was. But, um, you know, he talked about politics within New York because that's what he knew. And he was a black man that was you know, profiting, if even if what he was doing was illegal. I mean, he was making money. So, I mean, it's that's kind of the American dream, isn't it? Um, and I think the difference is, I think that's the biggest difference. People are not loving hip hop for what it is. They're just kind of, they're just rapping. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever seen Beat Street, but Beat Street is um, a movie from the 80s. And it's about, um, it's about these, these kids that just love hip hop, they, you know, they, um, they break dance and they put graffiti on subway cars and it's just, you know, what it is. And we, we don't really have that anymore. Kids don't love hip hop. They, there's nothing wrong with TikTok dances. There's nothing wrong with it. I don't want to sound like, you know, okay, boomer, but that's what people like. People aren't loving the art for what it is pretty much. And you touched on it a little bit with the modern audience of hip hop, mm -hmm. but are, are there any are there any things you don't like about hip hop or that you see as issues? Because like, for example, a song that you highlight in your book is 10 Crack Commandments, which is a good song. It's a great song, but obviously, you know, crack in these poorer communities, in these black and brown communities is a major problem. Right. So like, are there, is there anything like that that you sort of wish wasn't an element of hip hop? Um, I think if I was going to criticize Biggie in particular, I think his um sometimes his treatment towards women i think especially in ready to die in his debut album um there's a song that i never ever play ever ever play because i think it's disgusting it's um it's called just playing um dreams it's um Nicki minaj actually did a remix to it on her last album queen called barbie dreams which, you know, she absolutely killed it. But it's a song that I never play by Biggie. I just, I don't necessarily agree with it. Um, and as for Ten Crack Commandments, I, I completely agree. I think um, crack has really, or especially in the 80s, especially in New York, you know, my dad is a testament to that. My dad did not do crack. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that he grew up during this time. So he tells me a lot about it. Let me clear that up. Um, but, um, he, he was telling me, you know, yeah, crack definitely did, you know, ravage through the black community and, you know, we can get real political and we can talk about the CIA and we can talk about what the CIA did with crack to the black community and how it has really mm -hmm. damaged black families. Um, and tech crack commandments is really funny because I think, I think I was a freshman in high school when I did 
when I wrote an essay about Ten Crack Commandments, but I used it as a way to talk about things in my everyday life. Like kind of like kind of like I do in the book. I say like this is pretty much a survival guide for life. And so you can kind of tweak it to kind of have it make sense. Um, but that is a really good question. I don't agree with everything. I think you can say that about any type of music. You can listen to anything and say, I don't necessarily agree with this part. I think drugs have really affected a lot of great, great musicians, you know, Kurt Cobain, um, Amy Winehouse, um, Janis Joplin. So, I mean, I, I mean, obviously, you know, Biggie didn't die of, you know, drug complications, but, um, it's definitely a big, big part of music that I feel like we don't really talk about a lot. You can look at Juice World or anything like that and Mac Miller, and it's definitely something that we should definitely have a conversation about. You mentioned like how rappers obviously make comments about women. How has that influenced you listening to music? Because I've heard a bunch of times just talk whores and like talking about beating them up, whatever it be. How has that influenced you in listening to that? Um, I think, I think people are very selective in, um, where they find fault with things. Um, I think a lot of people villainized Biggie in the way that sometimes that he does speak about women. Um, and, um, especially like his relationship with little Kim and a lot of people blame him for, pretty much her, you know, getting a bunch of plastic surgery where she is pretty much unrecognizable than as she was in the early nineties, which, um, which I, I don't want to say it's not true. I do think he is definitely an element of that. I think it was, you know, a lot of men that did that, but then you also look at rappers who are celebrated for their, um, attitudes towards women like Tupac, you know, like keep your head up and things like that. When, I mean, go two tracks down on the same album and there's something that you were pissed that you were targeting Biggie for. And so I think people are very selective in their hearing and the things that they want to discuss and have conversations about. Um, I do think that hip hop is historically can be very misogynistic. Um, I do think that it's definitely something that a lot of I don't like the word female rappers, but that they have definitely tackled themselves, especially Queen Latifah. Um, she definitely talked about it a whole bunch. And she said um, that this was something that was really important to her, that she will not be sexualized. And it happens all of the time, not just by rappers, which is really important that people do realize that it's sometimes it's just dudes on the street. And I don't think that I mean, I just don't think that hip hop should be villainized for something that everybody does. All right, I think I think we're reaching about the time that I said this was going to take. I don't want to take. I don't want to keep you for too long. Um, I know I have one question I want to end off on. Magali, did you have anything you wanted to ask first? Ask yours, and then maybe I'll I'll think of mine. <laughs> All right. Well, because Siobhan, you and I have had this conversation personally, but I I want I want it on the air. I want it on the record. Top five rappers go. No, Robbie, <laughs> why are you doing this to me? Okay. Well, disclaimer. I feel like. I am actively working towards taking Ice Cube out of my top five um, just because he has disappointed me in the last like month and a half, but I have not done it yet. So he is still in there. Don't judge me. Um, okay. So top five, um, Biggie Smalls, obviously no surprise there. Um, Lil' Kim, my queen bee, um, KRS-One, 
Ice Cube. Ah, oh, wait, no. Can I do a top six? <laughs> sure, sure. Okay, so Biggie Smalls, KRS-One, Ice Cube, Rock Kim, Nicki Minaj. Did I say Lil Kim? All right, that's fine. Okay, okay. We're good. No, you did not say Lil Kim yet. Okay, that's my top on six. On this new one. Okay, that's your top six. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't think of anything. I think the one like stereotypical stereotypical question I would ask is how does it feel to be a young black writer? Because like I am a young Latina, brown, you know, whatever, come from absolutely nothing. I want to go into like book publishing and all that kind of stuff. So like seeing you do this, I'm like, okay. And you were like my mentor. You were the person that I looked up to. So like seeing this happen, I was like, oh shit. Like I could do it if Siobhan can do it with a, a Mexican who decided like, hey, I'm just going to give all these people of color like opportunities. Like how does that feel? Like is has it resonated with you yet? Because I think it's a pretty big fucking deal. I hope that you think it is too. But how does that feel like now? As opposed to when you were a little girl, because I remember you said that you like dreamed of this. Oh, yeah. I have been reading and writing my entire life. I think they go hand in hand. If you want to write a book, you need to read a book. <laughs> like you need to go and read everything. Um, and it's huge. This is absolutely huge for me. I'm forever grateful to Shay. Um, and I remember as as a kid um, reading Toni Morrison and she says, if there's ever a story that you want to read, but it hasn't been written, go write it. And that was huge for me because, you know, there's so many stories that I have that I want to write and not a lot of the girls look like me. Not a lot of the girls talk like me and not a lot of the girls come from places that I come from. And um, that's really, really what I wanted to do. And she was also asked, well, why do you always write about black people? Nobody asks. I think she even said, nobody asked Tolstoy why he writes about white people. He writes about his own people. He writes stories for his own people. And so I think, Magali, if you want to write, finding your audience and writing stories that you want to write that maybe have not been written yet, or if they have, write them even better. Because it's if I can do this, Anybody can do this, honestly. <laughs> I just, I think it's, it's the best feeling in the entire world. People actually paying money to read words that I wrote. That's amazing to me. <laughs> All right. I think, thank, thank you so much for coming on. I think that just about wraps this up for today. Um, really quick before we go, uh, where can people order your book? Um, it's on Gumroad, so gumroad.com slash Siobhan Chapman. My name's kind of hard to... I'll put the link in the, yeah. I'll put the, link in the show notes, don't worry. It's kind of long, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, guys.